Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the two drones that exploded over the Kremlin last night, aimed at hitting Putin's residence inside the walls, and assess whether the attack was the work of Ukrainian military intelligence or a propaganda event staged by the Putin regime. Joining us to discuss the unusual amount of publicity Russian state media is giving to the drone attack, which would seem to be a humiliation for Putin, but may be a pretext for a planned retaliation, is Vera Miranova, a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. The author of From Freedom Fighters to Jihadists, Human Resources of Non-State Armed Groups, she conducted fieldwork in numerous active conflict zones and post-conflict regions, including Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Georgia, Sudan, Congo, and Myanmar, and Ukraine. And from 2016 to 2017, she was embedded with Iraqi Special Operations Forces during the Mosul operation. She is currently writing a book about insurgency in the North Caucasus. She has a recent article at Foreign Policy, Ukraine Has a Secret Resistance Operating Behind Russian Lines, and she has a substack at conflictfieldnotes.com. Then we'll explore the feasibility of a possible democratic workaround of the Republican debt ceiling extortion with the use of an arcane congressional gambit known as the discharge petition that could bypass Speaker McCarthy and the House Freedom Caucus that controls him to avoid a default expected as early as June the 1st. Joining us is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And his latest book is Rivals for Power, Presidential Congressional Relations. Then finally, we will look into a new report from the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP, often called the nation's report card, which found a troubling drop in history and civics comprehension amongst eighth graders nationwide, the first decline ever recorded on the tests that cover the American political system, principles of democracy, and history. Joining us is Henry Giroux, a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual who currently holds the McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is also the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His latest books include Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis, and most recently, Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And he has an article at Truthout, U.S. Fascism is Spreading Under the Guise of Patriotic Education. Republicans are Rallying Behind Racist Pedagogy as an Organizing Principle. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Vera Miranova, who is a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, the author of From Freedom Fighters to Jihadists, Human Resources of Non-State Armed Groups. She conducted fieldwork in numerous active conflict zones and post-conflict regions, including Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Georgia, Sudan, Congo, and Myanmar, and Ukraine. And from 2016 to 2017, she was embedded with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces during the Moselle Operation. And she's currently writing a book about insurgency in the North Caucasus. And she has a recent article at Foreign Policy, Ukraine Has a Secret Resistance Operating Behind Russian Lines. Welcome to Background Briefing, Vera Miranova. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, Vera. And what do you make of the drone attacks on the Kremlin. Two drones got to the Kremlin, uh, apparently aimed at uh, Putin's residence within the walls, and they were blown up in the night sky. But what's interesting about it is that the Russian media has been able to talk about it, and the Kremlin has acknowledged it. So what do you make of it? Nothing. I think it's a great uh, opportunity for Russian media to talk about it. That's it. And what they're going to come up right now with an answer, that's that would be interesting to see. But right now, their propaganda is accusing everyone under the sun or like uh, U.S., Kiev, everyone for doing that. So let's see how they're going to plan to, you know, reply. And one of the propaganda channels, actually, uh, there was actually even a voting. How do you think uh, Kremlin should reply to Kiev for that attack? Right. But there's a, on May the 9th, Putin has to appear in public at the anniversary of uh, the end of World War II, right? Well, I think he should, yeah. Right. But if it's a real attack from the Ukrainians, then isn't he vulnerable on May the 9th, standing there? in front of Lenin's tomb? Well, I don't think he's vulnerable standing in, 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 in anywhere in Moscow because this attack is weird at best. Uh, I mean, it's just weird. I could not understand how technically this drone could have flown all that way without being you know, shot because absolutely every roof it passed had military on it with military equipment. So that's very kind of interesting how that actually happened. Right, but if it's a false flag operation, as you're implying, Vera, false flag operations conducted by Putin in the past have involved, you know, killing a lot of Russian citizens, as has happened back in 1999, before he went into the Second Chechen War. So a false flag operation to blame on the Ukrainians would involve blowing up an orphanage full of Russian kids or something like that, wouldn't it, as opposed to targeting Putin's residence inside the Kremlin? Why? There are many types of false flag operations you could do, absolutely, like, enormous number of them. So that's number... I mean, that's an interesting one, you know. It looks beautiful on, on, 
on Russian propaganda, doesn't it? So why not? Well, I'm not saying if it is, it's just, you know, it's just super weird operation and all weird operations basically raise questions. Well, I think it's technically possible for a drone to to reach Moscow from the the furthest uh, northeastern territory of Ukraine. But you're arguing that it would have been detected, right? Well, I mean, flying all the way from Ukraine? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it would be detected flying from the next neighborhood of right. Moscow. Well, so you, your feeling is then this is likely to be something that was staged in order to do what in terms of... No, it could be not staged, but maybe it would be let pass on purpose. I mean, it's just it's just weird. I mean, it's just weird. I'm not saying that, you know, Ukrainians didn't do it. I don't know. Like, right now, Kiev says they didn't, right? So, I mean, who knows? It's just the setup is very weird. Right. But it comes in a beautiful time, very convenient, you know. Well, Badanov, the head of military intelligence in Ukraine, has been chafing at the bit to strike deep inside Russia, and he's been restrained by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and there is an obvious asymmetry. The Russians are able to blow up buildings anywhere and everywhere across Ukraine and destroy its infrastructure, but Ukraine can't strike back at Russia, but they have been striking back. Just recently, they blew up an oil depot in Crimea, and then, of course, Dugan was killed deep inside Russian territory as well. So... What's your understanding about the extent of a, of a of a kind of partisan network of Ukrainians and also even Russians working inside Russia itself against the Putin regime? Oh, that I mean, that's not hard. I mean, that's not hard to to enter Russia basically and work for Ukraine. It's really not hard. First of all, because you know, same language, everything, so it's, it's very easy, and you know, we quite. We pretty much know how they enter, and you know it's, it's not an issue. Uh, the question is, uh, doing actually legit military operations or not? Like, what kind of what what are they doing there? That's the question. Right, but I I think Bodanov works around Reznikov, the defense minister in Yermak, in the president's uh, you know, chief of staff, I guess he is. Uh, neither of whom are particularly trustworthy, so. When they say they didn't do it, when Zelensky says they didn't do it, they've said that all along. They said that about Dugan as well, but that doesn't mean that they didn't do it, right? No, I mean, absolutely, like, but it does not mean that they did. We just do not know. Right. And even if they say they did it, I would not trust it either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, Dugan, uh, the Dugan operation, uh, one uh, very weird opposition Russian guy took credit for that and it's like, no dude, like you didn't do it. Right. Well Dugan himself was a fairly irrelevant figure. It's hard to understand why that why he was targeted in the first place. I mean because um he's known and he's pretty not important, so why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like well, there was also the the, the general that could raise the uh, issue, right? Like, but this is kind of a propagandist, like whatever. The same thing with Vladimir Tatarsky. It's kind of a big, loud public statement of absolutely zero military importance. That's the guy that was blown up in the cafe in in St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So, 
What is Russian media then saying, given the fact that it's unusual that they would publicize the fact that, at least going by what they're saying, that the Ukrainians tried to assassinate Putin and they got that close, literally blowing up the missile just above, inside the Kremlin. I mean, that's it's either if it wasn't a Ukrainian operation, it's got to rattle Putin's cage. And if it wasn't, and if it's a staged event, what's the purpose of that then? Why would they do it? What would Russian propaganda and Putin want to get out of it? I mean, that's another issue, like, as you correctly pointed out, it's all over Russian propaganda. So, like, it wouldn't be a coincidence, right? I think if someone really tried to seriously assassinate Putin and there would be some kind of problem with that, right, like some kind of danger to Putin's life, it would not be all over TV from 25 million cameras, right? That would be just a little weird. So it's a very good propaganda thing going on right now. I mean, Russia is trying to do everything possible to not may uh, to stop the possible Ukraine counteroffensive. So that would be a nice pretext to right now shoot everything they do have on Kiev and say, like, you see, like they try to attack us, right? And plus, people like let's go mobilize into military. Now we have people from Kiev trying to attack us. So it's like check, check. Mm-hmm. So does this mean? that the Russians will start targeting Zelensky? I don't know. I don't think so, but um, I just don't think so. I think they would go for military targets. Well, but initially, in the when the, the war began, on the first day, they sent some hit teams in for Kadyrov's Chechens and others into Kiev to try and kill him. And Well, great. Now, how far did they make it? Well, it's true, but apparently U.S. intelligence had warned uh, Zelensky about this. So it didn't succeed. So it's not as if they haven't tried before. The okay, and I think a lot of people probably maybe tried to kill Putin before. Like, do we even know that it happened, or it was stopped, stopped by a local police station somewhere, nowhere? Like, it's I don't see it's possible. I know several pretty serious uh, assassination attempts on Budanov that I know about, but Zelensky, something, someone who actually went anywhere close to actually worry about it, I haven't heard it. Right. So what would then be the point of this propaganda about if it's a staged event? How would it play in terms of the expected Ukrainian counteroffensive? I mean, I think the the event itself is pretty not important for that. It would be how Russia would use it. So um, they could kind of use it quite well for themselves for domestic and foreign audience and a foreign audience i mean the guys who are more or less support them so it would be i would expect this video to be all over russian propaganda in russia today in like arabic and you know latin america saying like you see we told you that they're trying to kill putin and putin is pretty popular there so it would not fly well um and, you know, we already see it all over the place in media because, at least, I mean, it's a, it's a great fodder opportunity. You know, this this explosion was filmed from 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 I don't know how many cameras, but like makes great, great um, video. And uh, also for domestic audience, because right now they need warm bodies on the front line. So come on, I, I'm sure if they package it well on propaganda and they did. And they're very good at it. It could uh, help them with mobilization efforts. So win-win. Right. But wouldn't it also appear to be a humiliation that they got this close 
even though Putin was not there, he was at the residence outside of Moscow. Oh, he's always in the residence outside of Moscow. I would like it's it was very weird to send it there on at night. So what did they expect that he like I mean, you saw the fire on this roof, like it could have hit Putin only if he was living on this roof at night, which is you know, <laughs> right. So it's, it's just like it was hilarious. I thought it's a joke when they sent me this morning. I'm like, what the heck? So, um, yes, humiliation, no, because it more looks like a joke for Russian audience. Right. But again, the signal, in terms of propaganda value, the signal appears to me to be that they can strike deep into Russia and right into the Kremlin itself. That's not a good look. I, I don't see I don't think people would ever think that way in Russia. I think that it's going to be more or less emotional response uh, and not um, like rational strategic. So emotional response, it would be like, what the hell are they doing? They're trying to kill our president like they're trying to attack us in Russia. Not good. So it would increase mobilization. So you expect him then to if he's going to be uh, appearing on uh, Tuesday for the annual parade, you one expect him to show up, and in the meantime, I guess we should be watching Russian propaganda to see what they're saying. Is there yeah, anything the, anything the, so far that you've been able to pick up? Yeah, I mean, since this morning, I'm doing exactly this. I'm watching all Russian propaganda on different channels, like Wagner, official ministry, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. And yeah, like they are really pushing it toward the message we need to respond we should respond today our aircrafts are already departing from airfields we, we're going to respond like that's the main message so they um i'm watching it you know since i woke up which i woke up in the u.s meaning that there was already like a day passed right in russia so uh you could see like message changed and uh first you know it's a classic way right like they were non-stop showing those videos non-stop showing videos so that people you know it actually gets into your brain and then they were like oh we need to respond we need to respond we need to respond and what do you think about uh, next tuesday they've canceled a lot of parades around the country but not in moscow mm, that sounds i mean first of all they don't have people but on the other side uh, from a propaganda point of view i just don't see I don't see a problem with that from a propaganda point of view because, you know, I'm Russian. I, I left Russia when I was 21, and I honestly don't remember, like, parades outside of Moscow. Like, Moscow is the parade. So this is the signal. Everywhere, right. just, you know, it's going to be a holiday. People, if the weather is nice, they're going to be walking outside, eating ice cream, you know. But the parade is Moscow. Right. So... Is it then connected, if it's a false flag or a, or a staged event, it's meant to show Putin as the leader on, on next Tuesday, standing in the podium, presiding oh, over the parade? Absolutely. In other words, he's, he's facing the enemy. Is that what the propaganda plan is? Uh, I, I think it's very logical, especially taking into account that Russia likes to absolutely copy-paste um, Ukrainian messages. So, for example, if Ukraine says, let's say, 
um, Russian president is like hiding in a bun- bunker, then Russian media is going to be saying and trying to prove that Zelensky is hiding in a bunker. So right now everyone is saying that Zelensky is a hero president who stayed and didn't uh, was not afraid for his life. Well, Russia would try to copy it also. Even like you, you don't like pick it up. But even if you if you speak fluent Russian, you would see that that Russia is trying to use the same language. So whatever language is used for Zelensky, they would try to use it for President Putin. And whatever negative language has been used about Putin, they would like turn it on Zelensky. So that they those you know like um, like symbols and names. Right. Well, just in closing, Vera, is this? A big deal. In other words, is it going to change anything on the battleground, uh, on uh, the battlefield? The event itself is not a big deal whatsoever. The question is, how would Russia use it to respond? Mm-hmm. So, if Russia would just again amplify it, saying that, like, oh, like that's that's that was a red line, right? And you know, should everything they do have on Kiev, well, that would be big. If they would kind of play down and only say that oh yeah like Putin is also a hero because he's not afraid to be assassinated uh, we could live okay. for that. So the red line fear of course is a use of a tactical nuclear weapon so you don't see that in the cards? I think in one telegram channel propaganda one there was one politician I forgot I think it's a, no I forgot who it was quite big politician in Russia uh, he said that uh, our aircraft with a nuclear is are already like preparing to fly to Kiev mm-hmm. but that's basically as far as it got in propaganda so far well we we have to wait and see not a very reassuring situation and I thank you for joining us Vera Miranova thank you and again, I've been speaking with Vera Miranova, who's a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, the author of From Freedom Fighters to Jihadists, Human Resources of Non-State Armed Groups. She conducted fieldwork in numerous active conflict zones and post-conflict regions, including Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Georgia, Sudan, Congo, and Myanmar, and Ukraine. And from 2016 to 2017, she was embedded with Iraqi Special Operations Forces during the Moselle operation. And she's currently writing a book about insurgency in the North Caucasus. And she has a recent article at Foreign Policy. Ukraine has a secret resistance operating behind Russian lines. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the feasibility of a possible democratic workaround of the Republic at debt ceiling extortion with an arcane congressional gambit known as the Discharge Petition. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and the founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And his latest book is Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Thurber. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And next Tuesday, President Biden is meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to negotiate over this uh, threatened uh, default on the national debt by the Republican House in terms of the debt limit, which, of course, they, what, three times during the Trump administration, they routinely passed a clean debt limit bill, even though he ran up debt at a record pace. So John Boehner referred to this kind of tactic as legislative terrorism. So the fact that they're sitting down to negotiate, to my mind, James, is is a failure on the part of the Democrats in the White House. You don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, it's hard to negotiate with terrorists when they're willing to blow up the place, Congress, uh, if you don't go along with them. The far right in the uh, Republican Party in, in the House of Representatives, where the Republicans have a majority of four, that's nothing, uh, is willing to just go right off the cliff and cause a major catastrophe in our markets and our economy. Remember last time in 2011, I've, I've written a, a lot about this, published on it. Uh, we lost 17 percent of market value in one day and about $4 trillion. And so they're willing to go ahead and do that. They're willing to not pay for things that we've already accomplished. That's what this is. This is paying for things that we've already done. It's crazy. And the people on the left are not, you know, sometimes they can get a little bit wild, but they they are hanging together in the Democratic Party for a clean debt limit bill. But they have other options which we can talk about, which uh, are being discussed right now, uh, discharge petition, but also using the 14th Amendment to go ahead and spend the money because in the 14th Amendment, it says that um, clearly uh, that we must pay for our debts. Uh, And I can talk more about that if you want me to. Well, let's talk about the feasibility of the democratic workaround of this Republican debt ceiling extortion with the use of this arcane congressional gambit known as the discharge petition. Apparently, they've already laid the groundwork for it in a, in a kind of stealth way. It takes a while, apparently, to do the groundwork. And uh, a little-known Democrat representative, Mark Desolnier of San Francisco, has been essentially the, the Trojan horse here. So... It's pretty unusual, isn't it? I think the last time it was used, I think it was in 2002, over an overhaul of campaign finance laws. Yes, and there's only been two other times where they've used the discharge petition uh, to pass laws, and it goes back to the 1930s. The discharge petition is very difficult, and they need five Republicans to go to the next step on the discharge petition. And yes, 30 days ago, in a stealthy way, they've introduced a bill that went to 20 different committees, and that met the, the requirement for the next step, 
uh, which is a series of votes uh, that will bring this bill uh, that was unrelated to the debt limit, but they can hollow it out and put debt limit uh, language in it to the floor where there's a vote. Now, it would take five Republicans to vote with the Democrats all voting together to pass it out of the House of Representatives. That may be one of the best ways to get away from this crisis. And you know there are only two countries in the world, two Democratic countries in the world that have debt limits, uh, legislation rules. Uh, and one is Denmark. They've never had this problem. And the, and the United States. And we've had this problem one way or the other eight times in the last 30 years. It's a serious problem uh, coming up to this cliff on the debt limit. And some people say, well, we don't need it. Um, and I, from my opinion is that if, if they're going to add things to a debt limit bill and not have a clean bill, uh, it should not only be for spending, but it should be for taxes. Because one of the reasons we have a huge debt is we've given away a lot of money uh, under two George W. Bush tax bills and under uh, the Trump bill that, that uh, reduce taxes for the very wealthy. And that means revenues are not coming in, they're tax expenditures, and therefore we're in debt. Uh, and so no one on the Republican side is talking about the fact that we need revenue tax reform. Right, but if this extortion reaches the showdown and it's difficult to know who's going to get blamed, that's why I've been so concerned, uh, James Thurber, that the White House and the Democrats haven't framed this clearly. And the press, by the way, has framed it as a dispute over dueling budget proposals, you know, in that sort of binary he said, she said way that we cover politics where you have to have the equal and opposite arguments from the Democrats and the Republicans. This should not be seen in that light, surely. This is not politics as usual. I agree. And people go to the social media where they get most of their information, but also the radio like yours and others. And they go to places that they agree with and it reinforces their pre-existing positions on this, which makes it very difficult for members to compromise. The institution of Congress is created where you need to compromise. You need to come together, especially on something like this for the for the good, the public good of America, and it's, it's not happening. This 14th Amendment, I don't know if you want to go in it, but, but the 14th Amendment, let me just clearly say the clause states that, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions, bounties, for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. So, there's this discussion of, well, we're just going to go ahead and pay for it, and it'll be a con it'll go to the courts, and they'll determine whether it's constitutional or not to do that. Uh, that is on the table. Uh, negotiations are on the table, a clean bill versus one with a whole lot of cuts and very popular programs, things that Biden pushed through and got votes for, as well as the discharge petition. And this is different than 2011. This is serious. Uh, it was serious then, but it's very serious now. My prediction is that they'll try to try to delay it and put in a, a provision where we'll go on for a couple more months 
and we we can go ahead and increase the debt temporarily from the 31.4 trillion for a couple more months and then at the end of that maybe they'll have something negotiated but when you said a minute ago James that the purpose at least should be the purpose of the House of Representatives is to come up with compromise. My sense is that you shouldn't be at the point where you have to compromise. Surely this should be non-negotiable. Well, we had a revolution against the king who told us what we could and could not do. And what we, we have this representative democracy where, in my opinion, you've got people on the extreme right that are willing to blow the place up. But we are a representative democracy, and they're there, and the Republicans only have a majority of four. So it's a unique situation where it's very hard for Speaker McCarthy to deliver anything. If he delivered a a compromise out of this bill, if he delivered a clean bill, he would no longer be Speaker. Remember, it took 15 votes, and uh, it only takes four or five people to get rid of him. And so he's... He did a deal with the devil, a Mephisto deal, and he, and he continues to do that by putting these provisions on the debt limit bill, and it's, it's a critical stage for our democracy. But isn't it quite possible, and I think likely, that the Freedom Caucus are nihilists and that they're perfectly happy to crash the economy because that would create a recession and that would hurt Biden's re-election campaign and make it easier for their hero, Donald Trump, to come riding in on a white horse and bring about America's first dictatorship. That is the argument. The latter, they don't say, but that would happen if Trump was elected. Uh, That is the argument of the Greens, the people on the far right, Representative Green, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, and other people who are willing to blow the thing up. Better to blow the thing up and start over but we would destroy the economy here and disrupt the economies worldwide if we did that. So let's talk then about the process then of this gambit of uh, a discharge petition. Now that the groundwork has been laid by Representative Mark DeSolier of San Francisco, it's a petition, so you have to have a majority of the House, which will be all of the Democrats would sign it, and you'd have to get five Republicans to sign it. So how do you proceed with that? And will they get it done, if they can get it done, before the June 1st deadline when uh, Secretary of Treasury Yellen said uh, the country's going to default? Well, first of all, let's start with the last question. There are estimates that they can't get it done before June 12th at the best because uh, of the number of legislative days, they're not real days, legislative days are when they're in session, uh, and they couldn't get it done until June 12th. They have to go through the Rules Committee, and there's a two-to-one plus one majority for the Republicans in the Rules Committee. They'd have to get a bill out of the Rules Committee uh, unless they went to the floor with this discharge petition and they had the votes to do that. They have a series of votes. Uh, that they need, and they need to have several committees agree with it also and votes on those committees. I think it's going to be very hard to get it. Well, the Democrats are in a minority. The idea that you've got to have 20 votes on 20 committees, that seems like it's dead on arrival. Uh, many people think that, yes. And uh, I, I, you know, that's why I think 
we'll probably have a delay and continued negotiations. Or if Biden wants to do it, he'll go ahead and and use the 14th Amendment to spend the money to pay for the debt that we've already incurred. Um, personally, I think that's the way to go. They, they thought about it in 2011. They rejected it. Uh, Lawrence Tribe from Harvard said, no, that's, you know, it's unconstitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but I have looked at this over the years, and I think that's the route to go. Uh, the, the bottom line on this whole thing is we don't know. And, you know, if you're in business, you're running a university or whatever, you want predictability. And we don't know what's going to happen. And that's a serious problem. But how does Biden pay the bills via the 14th Amendment? What, what's the practical pathway? I don't know. I think they just write checks and continue to borrow money uh, to, do, to do that, which means that they 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 sur- surpass the federal cap of 31.4 trillion. They just do it, and uh, they print money, and, uh, meaning they borrow it and they pay it, uh, and eventually they have to deal with that once uh, you have a change in spending or taxes. Uh, but the bottom line is, I don't know exactly technically how they do it out of Treasury, but they, but uh, uh, some think they they can do it, and uh, it's a matter of uh, just writing the checks to the to the people that you owe it to, the servicemen, soldiers, the pensions, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, to make sure those checks continue to go out. They borrow the money to do that. So that cuts out the the main prerogative, though, of, of the legislative branch, doesn't it? Unless you, what's the other theory or the other suggestion is to mint some kind of a trillion dollar platinum coin. Yes. Uh, to answer your first question, Congress has the power of the purse. There's some legislatures around the world that they say they have the power of the purse, but they don't have that much power, but they also have the responsibility to pass a budget on time and, and a debt limit bill on time and, and uh, uh, appropriations on time. And they, they haven't done it. They've only passed the budget on time four times since 1974 when they implemented the Budget and Power Control Act of 74. Um, so they're not meeting that responsibility, which it's, then that gives more power to the, to the president. Um, as he has through executive orders and other actions. And so he would take that action and it would take power away from Congress, uh, take power away from the power of the purse of Congress if they did it. And the coin? I can't answer the coin. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems somewhat absurd, but apparently it's not entirely impractical, even though... Uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a professional on the coin. I've read about it. I think it's flaky. <laughs> you right, know. It's, <laughs> uh, I think gonna, that's the that's the right way to describe it. So I, I, I thank you I, for joining us, James. I appreciate it. Sure, yeah, my my pleasure. Thank you for calling again. Bye bye.
Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with James Thurber, who's a University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And his latest book is Congress and Diaspora Politics, The Influence of Ethnic and Foreign Lobbying. We take a brief station break back looking into a new report which found a troubling drop in history and civics comprehension amongst eighth graders nationwide. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Henry Giroux, a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual who currently holds the McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is also the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His latest books include Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis, and most recently, Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And he has an article at Truth Out, U.S. fascism is spreading under the guise of patriotic education. Republicans are rallying behind racist pedagogy as an organizing principle. Welcome to Background Briefing, Henry Giroux. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the National Assessment of Education Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, just tested 7,800 students across the country in civics and 8,000 children in 8th grade U.S. history. And on a point scale of 0 to 500, the average U.S. history score dropped 5 points to 258, meaning that 13% of 8th graders scored at or above the proficient level. And then in civics, the average score dropped 2 points to 150, meaning that just 22% of 8th graders scored at or above the proficient level. So in effect, 40% of 8th grade students in this country are performing below basic proficiency in history, and 31% are performing below basic proficiency in civics. So with book banning happening and Ron DeSantis attacking public education and the universities in Florida, it's hardly surprising, but it's not just Florida, right? This is a nationwide problem. Well, it's a nationwide problem, not just simply in the sense that there's a crisis of literacy and historical consciousness and history and civic consciousness at work in the United States. And by the way, this didn't begin uh, with DeSantis. It's been going on since the 1980s when all of a sudden the Republicans and those in power have decided they were going to wage a war on education and public goods, and basically anybody who engaged in critical thinking. But I think the problem with this assessment tool is that it sort of reveals the degree to which it really hasn't asked the right questions. And the real question is, what is schooling for? Well, schooling should be for democracy, for educating young people to be able to master the tools of, of, of citizenship, what it means to be active agents, what it means to be critically literate, and what it means to analyze 
subjects that basically expand their imagination, their agency, and their sense of knowledge. And I think that what we've seen happen since the 1980s is, again, that teachers are under assault. Increasingly, now more than ever, their behavior is being criminalized. Books are banned. Teachers are censored. The principles of democracy are under assault. And I think that what we're seeing here is not a crisis of simply education or civic learning. This is a crisis of democracy. And this is not just a pedagogical crisis, Ian. This is a political crisis. It's a crisis of agency. When you eliminate the possibility for critical agency among young people, you eliminate the possibility for them to mature into informed and engaged citizens. And when you don't have engaged citizens, you don't have a, 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 you don't have a democracy. That language is completely missing from this report. And, and, if, and not only is it missing, it operates off the assumption that the ultimate measure of education is empirical. Basically, what does it mean to test people to get scores? And what that usually results in, results in a standardized curricula. It results in a pedagogy of repression and conformity. It places an emphasis on, on testing, teaching for the test. And, and, we should be, and we should be surprised under those circumstances that there's a crisis in learning in the U.S., particularly around subjects that are now being viewed by a party that for all intent and purposes is really a fascist party, a neo-fascist party that basically hates teachers, hates schools, hates critical thinking, and, and correlates the notion of wokiness with the correlation of justice, which, it, of course, it's against. So I, I really don't understand what, how important this, this report is. I, I don't think it tells us anything except to reinforce the old Chesterfin logic that we need more accountability, we need more standardization, and we need more testing. Well, those things are not about school. They're not about education. They're about training. And I think if you simply want to train students for the workplace and you don't have a language that basically can speak to the public good, what you're going to get is what you get right now. And that is a crisis of literacy, a crisis of justice, a crisis of equity, and a crisis of education. Well, the fact, though, that the scores are going down, I think, and this is the first time since, I think, 1994, that the scores have gone down indicates a negative trend, though, doesn't it? Well, it, it certainly indicates a negative trend, and that negative trend is not simply that schools are basically not performing well in, in ways that, you know, dominant educational mainstream uh, educational th uh, philosophers would define. It, it also means that schools are under attack. I mean, they're being defunded. There's an enormous attempt to simply substitute public schools for private education, for charter schools. Uh, they're being, they're being, and not, only, not only are they being underfunded, they're facing all kinds of material problems, a lack of resources, over, understaffing, crowded classrooms. Uh, I mean, I, I think when you ignore these things and you simply focus on test scores without putting them in a larger socioeconomic and political context, you just missed the point. The point's missed. You know, the, the, the real crisis is missed. And the crisis that usually is talked about is, oh, teachers are not doing the right thing. Students are not really trying. Oh, it's because they're on their cell phones all the time. It, it's, just, it's, it's an argument of diversion. That's all it really is. The real crisis is not a crisis of test scores. The real crisis is a crisis of, of public education and the consequences that we're dealing with in light of that crisis. Well, I think a very telling piece of evidence about the Republican motives here is that one of Trump's election lawyers, Cleta Mitchell, she was caught on tape doing a 
briefing for the Republican National Committee on how to conduct the 2024 elections. And she was recommending that they target universities to make sure that students can't vote and complain, saying that all a student has to do is roll out of bed, walk down the stairs and vote and go back to bed. As though, <laughs> as though somehow or another that's a terrible thing, that voting oh, I, I mean, is, is easy. In other words, they are going to target students in red states. You, I mean, it's going to happen. So it seems to me it's connected to what we're talking about. In other words, at the end of the day, if you don't want students to vote, you certainly don't want to educate them. That's exactly right. And I think that what you want to realize here is that you're living at a time which echoes something that Hannah Harant once said. She said, the essence of fascism is the hatred of critical thinking the inability to think critically and to act courageously. And it seems to me that's exactly what we're talking about here. I mean, one of the reasons that the GOP, the the Republican Party, has placed such an emphasis on attacking schools is that they may be one of the few public spheres left that actually have the possibility for educating people to think critically, for educating young people to basically look at the world in ways that promote matters of justice, equity, freedom, and tolerance. Uh, and, and, and somehow address the massive inequality that has destroyed this democracy. And I think that unless you can talk about those issues, and, and if you can't talk about those issues, or if you see those issues as a detriment, poisonous to education, then who are you going to attack? You're going to attack students. Of course they don't want them to vote, because they, they might be more educated than they want them to be. And if they are, they pose a danger. Then they go after the institutions. Then they go after tenure. Then they go after courses. Then they go after what can be taught and what can't be taught. You know, look, the thing we have to realize here, and I, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, we have seen this before. The real crisis in history may not be what's being, not being taught. The real crisis in history is what we forget to remember. And what we need to remember is what happened in Germany in the 1930s, when all of a sudden, you know, you, the, the Third Reich, eliminated courses that dealt with anything that was critical uh, uh, critical of Nazi Germany, fired Jewish principles, targeted Marxists and communists, targeted people who were basically socialists and critical thinkers, and put people in jail. I mean, banned books, you know, went after LGBTQ people, I mean, and they were the first that they went after. Uh, so it, it seems to me that we have both a crisis of remembering and a crisis of history pedagogy itself. And if we can connect those two, then a larger picture begins to emerge here. Well, within the context of what you just described, Henry, what the Nazis did was generate hate. And it seems like hate is a precursor for for a fascist takeover. And there's no question that we're seeing an uptick on just blind hatred from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other Freedom Caucus-type Republicans. And the Republican Party's clearly become a radical party. But hatred has been unleashed across the country. And is that a predicate for fascism? I, I think that, you know, fascism begins with language. And it begins with the language of demonization. It begins with an attack on critical ideas. It begins with an attack on, on critical individuals. And, and, and we know where it ends. It ends in the camps. It ends in the jails. It ends in the torture chambers. You know, it, it ends in places where people who are critical basically are now under assault. 
And I, and I think that what we're seeing here is very dangerous, very similar to what we've seen in Nazi Germany and Argentina and Chile uh, under, under a, a number of authoritarian regimes, and we should be alarmed. And I, and I, and I think that the language of hate is absolutely central to here, but I think that what you want to remember is it's not just the language of hate, it's the language of white supremacy. And I don't think we want to forget that. Central to fascism is both cultural genocide and racial genocide. And I think this attack on sexual identity, this attack on, on black people, this attack on, on, on people who basically don't, are not certified white Christian nationalists, really spells something that is as ominous as it is dangerous. The Marjorie Taylor Greens are just the, the mouthpieces of a party and, and a movement in the United States that's been going on for a long time that's dedicated to a politics of disappearance, both in terms of knowledge, in terms of bodies, and in terms of, of what I would call the production of what I call cultural genocide. The crisis of history is about cultural genocide. Whole histories being wiped out. You know, whole bodies of knowledge being thrown out the window. Ideas being poisoned. And that's linked to the politics of hate. Then you begin to demonize those very people who, that you want to erase from history. And I think that's, an, uh, that's a connection we need to make. But the other, and I, I know this is probably depressing the audience, but this is really what America is about today and what it's becoming. The other adjunct to this is when you talk about critical thinking. If we did teach critical thinking, QAnon and all these conspiracy theories and, and all of this, you know, quack medicines and all of this new age, you know, medical fraud, none of that would be so ubiquitous and so much on the rise, would it? If, if oh, we... I, I'm, listen, I completely agree with you, Ian. Ian, we're in a period where the notion of, 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 of being critical, the notion of analysis, informed judgment, the notion of being able to place things in context is being overridden by what I call a massive machinery of manufactured ignorance. We're in the age of disimagination machines, and these disimagination machines are connected to economic and political interests. I can't even imagine what AI is going to do uh, in the future here if the level of inequality persists in this country in which people who have the money, who drive politics now, have access to that stuff and what it can do to just spread both the discourse of hate, the discourse of illiteracy, and, and the discourse of, of, of warmongering uh, across the globe. It's a very frightening moment. And I, and I think this question of, you know, I'm, I'm not just talking about critical thinking. I'm talking about critical consciousness. And that means you think critically in order to act courageously and civically. The ideas are now articulated to action. And that's what, basically what universities and schools should be about. Because if students lose their sense of agency, if they get depoliticized, they become complicit with a system that in their guts they may not even approve of. Well, in your article that I mentioned, the U.S. fascism is spreading under the guise of patriotic education. Republicans are rallying behind racist pedagogy as an organizing principle. You start out by talking about far-right leaders such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Senator J.D. Vance, who've declared war on institutions of public and higher education. Now, in terms of J.D. Vance, he has a direct connection to what you're talking about in terms of 
the next generation of AI, as bad as it is now with Meta's plans. And I mean, as bad as it is, you, you know, kids sit around a table or even the dinner table at home and they're looking at their phones and not looking at the at the rest of the family or their friends across the table. And that's bad enough, but with a helmet on, everybody's going to be looking into the infantile fantasies of Mark Zuckerberg 24-7. And that'll, no, I, be, the, th- that'll be the end of us. But I, J.D. Yeah. Vance is the protege of, of Peter Thiel, who is the mentor right. of Zuckerberg and a bunch of these uh, techno-utopians uh, who are bringing us nothing but dystopia. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I think that one of the things that one of the ways in which we can enter into that conversation is to talk about another crisis that's not related to it. And that is what I call the crisis of social atomization. The mainstream press calls it the crisis of loneliness. It's about far more than loneliness. It's about it's, the backdrop for all of this is a culture that basically says that, you know, we're in a war of all against all, that public institutions don't matter, social provisions are evil, that we need to simply be entertained alone without any kind of social fabric to hold us together. You know, as the social fabric declines and people become more atomized and more alienated, you know, you're creating a culture that not only might become increasingly more illiterate, but it also becomes increasingly more fascist in its attempts to reach out to be part of communities whose appeal might be through video games, but ultimately make an appeal to racial cleansing and ultimately, ultimately make an appeal to white supremacy. I mean, the, all, the, all the parts are here. And I, and I think even, even uh, Biden, I mean, I, for all of his nonsense, you know, in some ways, student loans and immigrants and all of that, I mean, at least he, he's using the word semi-fascist. I mean, the word fascism has to be on the agenda. It has to be made clear, you know, what the relationship is between a savage neoliberal capitalism and an emerging politics that now takes as its, as its endpoint the elimination, if I may call it that, or the politics of disposability that involves young people, black people, brown people, immigrants. Again, anyone who is not part of that white Christian nationalist fundamentalist logic that basically has almost destroyed any vestige of American democracy, in, in my mind. Well, back to the test scores. Eighth graders are, are more ignorant about history, and of course, meaning that they are not necessarily going to be taught about the examples that you gave about the Nazis, for example, and then civics, which essentially means that they're alienated from a government that they're not participating in. The whole point of democracy, it only works if people participate. And we have the lowest participation, and the entire strategy of the Republican Party is to make sure that as few as possible Democrats vote and as many of their people vote. So they're they're fundamentally invested in voter suppression. So well, I, I, Yeah, I, but I don't think it's just simply about voter suppression. I mean, I... I, th- I think that what, what we're really talking about here is a party that views the government as something that only should function in the interest of the financial elite. And so, therefore, when you associate the government with any notion of social responsibility, it becomes evil. So why would young people not have a negative attitude towards government when they're constantly being told that the government is an instrument of oppression? I mean, that, that, that serving that public goods basically make people lazy 
that that social provisions don't matter, that social security should be eliminated, and that the only thing that really matters are the financial elite whose taxes should be lowered to the point where they pay none and are completely removed from the obligations of what it means to be collectively involved in a democracy. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's this, you know, when, when you look at the points that would connect matters of education, matters of civic literacy, matters of civic justice, to any notion of, 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 his, of history, any notion of civic, civic, uh, uh, civic education, the, 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 the points don't connect. Right. They don't connect because they're not related. We don't right, celebrate. But, but just in closing, though, Henry, if you, if you taught civics and people understood civics, they would understand that they have a stake. That's that right. And that's the whole point of the far right in this country is to alienate people from government so that they're not connected. Oh, no, that's right. And, and, I completely and, agree. That's exactly right. So I, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, having this conversation, as alarming as it is. But um, it is what it is, right? Can we, let's end with one last point, if we have one second here. And that is, so, look, this is also being fought by young people all over, the, all over the country. I mean, young people are protesting against gun violence, environmental injustice. They're protesting against all kinds of things. It isn't that so dark that we don't see moments of hope and moments of collective possibility. And for that reason, I'm not completely pessimistic at all. Well, Henry Giroux, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, thanks a lot, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Henry Giroux, who's a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual, who currently holds the McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is also the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His latest books include Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis, and most recently, Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And he has an article of truth out, U.S. fascism is spreading under the guise of patriotic education. Republicans are rallying behind racist pedagogy as an organizing principle. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
One more light goes out. 